Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for listening. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. If you have a creative endeavor and you want to see how the library can help, visit cpl.org. Again, that is cpl.org. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. We're on your favorite podcasting services, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anywhere you look. And when you do that, consider rating and reviewing us. We would uh, really appreciate a high rating and a good review. It helps other people find this show. And if you have any feedback or you want to suggest a guest or anything like that, go ahead and send that my way. Uh, I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we've got a special episode with Barb Palmer of Baldwin-Wallace University. Mary, you want to go ahead and take us through what we talked about this week? Yeah, so Barb Palmer is a political scientist uh, who specifically focuses on women and the issue of women in politics um, and the lack thereof. Um, It's an especially interesting and relevant question given the fact that in 2018 we are seeing more women run and win primaries in Congress than ever before, especially on the Democratic side. So we sat down with her and talked a little bit about why women face challenges or what specific challenges women face when they do try to run. Um, And a lot of it comes down to the fact that um, there's a confidence gap. Women don't necessarily wake up in the morning and think that they're going to be the next president of the United States, whereas men, uh, a a lot of men do. I know Um, I do. That's that's why I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so we, we chatted with her a little bit about Um, the year of the woman, what that means, whether or not we're going to see more women enter elected office, and, you know, what women look like in Ohio politics, um, the representation here. All right, let's go ahead and get to the conversation that Mary and I had with Barb Palmer. We are joined today by Dr. Barb Palmer, who is the executive director for the Center for Women and Politics of Ohio. She's also a political science professor at Baldwin-Wallace University. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So we are here today to talk about the gender gap in politics nationally and, of course, in Ohio as well. And I always like running through the statistics because I find them shocking every time I read them off. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So only 22 percent of Ohio's legislature is female. Um, And that sounds really bad. Well, nationally, it's yeah, I'm sorry. So nationally, it's about. 26%. Exactly. So we're kind of on par with the rest of the country. So I'd be really interested first to talk a little bit about your research into the subject on the gender gap uh, in politics nationally in Ohio. What do you think are some of the factors that contribute to the fact that women don't seem to be getting elected in the same numbers as men do? Yeah, and so for about 20 years, I've been trying to explore that. And Ohio is such an interesting case. Um, We like to talk about Ohio as a bellwether for presidential politics. If you want to know what the nation's thinking, you just look at Ohio. And as it turns out, Ohio is also kind of a national indicator when it comes to the success of women as well. There are a lot of things that reflect national trends, but there are a few kind of interesting exceptions as well. One of the biggest barriers that female candidates face Um, no matter what they're running for, is incumbency. And of course, this is going to be true whether you want to have fewer lawyers in Congress or if you want to have more young people. Um, Incumbency is just a huge barrier to overcome. And the bottom line is most incumbents are men. And so you basically have to wait for them to, you know, 
have a sex scandal or die before you're going to really create any some serious opportunities for other folks to get in there. Um, the other thing that I've been exploring is the impact of gerrymandering, which contributes, of course, to incumbency. And so one of the things that my research explores is this idea that if you ask any political candidate or political consultant, we know that there are certain demographic profiles of a district where a Republican or a Democrat is going to win. And so if you look at the demographic profile of the district, you can predict the outcome based on party. So I was really interested in whether or not this was true, if you could use that same kind of idea to predict whether a man or a woman would win a particular district. And it turns out you can. Uh, where women are successful, at least at the congressional level, um, these women come from very different districts than where you see men being successful. And this is true for women of both parties for the most part, although that is potentially changing. Um, but you know, when you look at the demographic profiles where women are successful, they are different from districts where men are successful. And in fact, if you look at the women in Congress right now, they come from three states. Women are not sort of randomly sprinkled across the United States. They come from three states, and you can probably guess what they are. I'm going to guess California. Yep. I'm going to guess New York. Yep. The third one's kind of interesting. It's actually Florida. But when you think of all the major metropolitan areas that Florida has, which is where women tend to be successful, that's why you see Florida as the number three. Um, and so, you know, you have to understand that there is a political geography to women's success. And so you can, in fact, we call it gender mandering, where if you took into account um, whether or not a woman would be likely to win a district, you would come up with slightly different configurations. Um, and so, as it turns out, women of both parties tend to be more successful in districts that are urban, which you'd expect for Democrats, but not Republicans. Um, so as a result, these districts tend to be much more compact and smaller. Uh, these districts also tend to be the wealthier districts in the nation, which you would expect for Republican women, but not Democratic women. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi, for example, I think comes from the wealthiest district in the nation. Um, these districts also tend to have people, more people with college degrees, so higher levels of education. You can you can decide for yourself what that means. Um, but they also tend to be much more racially diverse. And so you have these districts that are the kind of Tony Shishi, urban loft, hipster kinds of downtown districts. And that's where you tend to see a lot more female candidates and a lot more women winning. So, you know, I know you talked a little bit about it, but what are some of the challenges? Um, I know incumbency is a big one. I know, you know, where they're running is a big one, gerrymandering. But what are some of the challenges that women candidates face that their male counterparts may not face? Well, I think there's two things going on that are really important to keep in mind. Um, in a lot of respects, and I hate to say this, but in a lot of respects, women are kind of their own worst enemies. Um, there are There's a lot of great research that shows when you take a man and a woman who have the identical resume, they have the exact same qualifications, the man will say, oh, of course I'm qualified to run for office. And the woman will say, oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. It's not really, not, that's not for me. I, I don't know how to fundraise, even though she just raised, you know, $5,000 for her kid's elementary school. Um, you know, they just don't see themselves as qualified. And maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> um, but men just seem to wake up and think, I'm going to run for president. And women just don't do that at the same levels that men do. So I think that's part of it is women just don't aren't willing to put themselves out there at the same rates as men. 
Does that have anything to do with like tracking when, um, you know, women are younger? Like we hear about women not going into STEM careers because they're not sort of geared. They're not pushed in that direction. Are uh, young girls just not pushed into the direction of politics? So they they kind of grow up thinking that, you know, that's out of their reach or something? You know, I think there is something to that because, although I think it's a little bit more complicated, um, one of the major career paths, you know, into politics is law. And women have been attend- are now there are more women in law school right now than there are men, and that's been true for quite a long time. But we still don't see that translating into you know a dramatic increases in the number of women who are running. But I do think there is something in what you're saying in terms of just um, I call it the nine year old girl effect. If you don't see yourself in these positions, it doesn't dawn on you that you can do it. And so. You know, regardless of the fact of whether or not Sarah Palin ended up in the White House or Hillary Clinton ended up in the White House, it was so important for young girls and boys to see that visual. Mm-hmm. So never underestimate the power of that visual. You know, the number of young girls who were inspired by that and thought, oh my gosh, like, I can do that. You know, here's a woman running for president. I can do that. And there's lots and lots of anecdotal evidence that that's really important. So I, I guess my, my other question is, too, I mean, I think we're sort of talking about this confidence gap when it yeah. comes to women, right? And women not sort of seeing themselves in the role, um, whereas men, like you said, wake up in the morning and are, are like, I'm going to be the next president of the United States. The other sort of concern that I've heard from women um, as far as why women don't run is the fact that women are often primary caregivers um, to children and to parents and um you know, the time in your life when you're really advancing your career also happens to coincide with um, when people start families. And I know for a long time that was a case, but but does that still the sort of woman, you know, having to take time, right, Mm -hmm. like having to take time off to have kids, like, is that also a factor in, you know, women choosing to run later in life or women choosing, you know, not to enter politics because they want to, you know, have a family yeah absolutely um we know that when on average when women run they tend to be older uh, than their male counterparts and this has been true for a really long time because women wait for their kids to be grown um and we have lots of great survey data on this too where um women will just say you know i can't do this right now because i've got two small kids at home this is changing um and we're starting to see um more and more women actually in politics having babies um tammy duckworth for example um you know brought her baby to the house floor um for the first time ever uh and so but there have been very few women in congress who have had babies while they were in congress i think it's it's about a dozen in the history of congress um but i think that is a huge challenge we still know that women still do most of the housework they still do most of the childcare, and until we see that and it is changing we do know that that is changing if there there are huge differences between generations on that issue um and with younger folks you know much more willing to share the work um but it's going to be well until we see that change actually have an impact on who's running what characteristics do you think successful female candidates have is there some sort of magical formula do they have to be different than men do they have to be better than men i mean i've heard women in all sorts of industries tell me you know you have to be 10 times better than the guy You know, it's fascinating. I think there is that perception, but a good female candidate follows, I think, the same rules as a good male candidate. And 
there's a couple different ways of look at thinking about this. The bottom line is that for almost every office that we elect in this country, voters couldn't care less if they were voting for a man or a woman. And we have lots of data to show that. And that's been true for quite a long time. Um, I think there may have still been some differences when we're talking about president, but I think Hillary Clinton went a long way towards sort of smashing those expectations. And we can talk more about that. But for the most part, voters don't care. Um, however, what's interesting is there's been some really great research that shows that political consultants and the candidates themselves still perceive that voters do perceive differences between male and female candidates. But what I would argue is that what makes a good male candidate is the exact same thing that makes a good female candidate. You have to be yourself. You cannot turn yourself into something that you're not. And because voters will sniff that out immediately and your campaign's over. And so I would argue that, you know, good campaign 101 for men is the exact same good campaign 101 for women. You know, we've talked to uh, the heads of both the parties in the state, and I don't I don't know, um, neither of them seem to really have a really uh, concrete answer to me about what exactly the parties can do to, um, you know, better foster more women candidates. Um, you know, we've talked, you know, Democrats kind of have the uh, uh, perception of being better with, you know, uh, recruiting women candidates. But I mean, if you look around the state, I don't think there's too much proof there. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's actually two, I think, big barriers that women face. And one is themselves, and the second is the parties. The bottom line is parties just, neither party, and I want to make that clear, this isn't a Republican or a Democrat thing, neither party really cares about whether or not they recruit female candidates. The problem is that the parties want to recruit candidates that they perceive as being able to win. And the problem is most party leaders are men, and there are exceptions to that. But the perception is that you know m- male candidates tend to get the assumption that they're going to be better off at winning. But there's so much data that shows that that's not true, especially this time around. In 2018, female candidates had much higher success rates than their male counterparts for both parties. Probably most telling, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over there knocked off yep. Joe Crowley, who's, exactly. you know, uh, one of the top dogs in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And she was, you know, she didn't she even have... She was a bartender. Yeah, she was a bartender. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we know that women do really well, um, especially in Democratic primaries. But the bottom line is that neither party at the national level or the state level really cares about whether or not they recruit women. That's just and they'll give lip service. They're really good at giving lip service to it. Like, yes, this is important. And, you know, we want to recruit the best candidate. No, um, there's no evidence that they're actually doing anything about it. And because what it takes in this country is our candidate recruitment system is just so decentralized. Um, You know, using the example from before, you can literally wake up tomorrow morning and decide you want to run for president, and there's nothing that whatever party you choose to affiliate with can do about it. Um, They can help you or not, Um, but it's ultimately an individual decision in this country on whether or not you want to run for public office. And we've already talked about the reasons why men are far more likely to make that decision. Um, And the bottom line is that recruiting women to run 
because of all the reasons we've talked about is hard. It's really hard. Like you, let's say you, if you are a party leader and you, you know, you make recruiting women your priority, um, you, there's tons of qualified women out there, but trying to convince them to run is much harder than trying to convince a man to run. And so by the time you've convinced a woman to run, there's already four guys in that primary. So it's, so that's one of the big challenges. But the bottom line is the parties just aren't willing to institutionalize or put any kind of serious money behind actually recruiting candidates. However, there are some organizations popping up at the state level. So the Democrats, for example, have created an organization called um, Emerge. And they're in, I think... I'm forgetting the numbers. I, want, I think they're in about two dozen states. So this is a Democratic organization at the state level um, that their job is to recruit and train female Democrats to run for a public office in a particular state. The Republicans do have an equivalent, but each state names their program after a famous woman within the state. Um, and I know there's one in Ohio, and I'm apologizing because I, I'm totally blanking on the name. Um, you know, we could probably guess the name of the organization because there are that many women in well, yeah, Ohio probably. Politics. Yeah, but I'm embarrassed <laughs> that I can't remember it. Um, but it started in Indiana. Um, but I know there is an organization in Ohio. I don't know how active they are anymore. Um, but that's, you know, that's unfortunately what it takes is you really have to do this at the state level because our party system is so decentralized compared to other countries. And the decision to run is an individual decision. And so it would literally take 100 party leaders <laughs> to make this a priority before we're going to see any serious change. So you you convince a woman to run. She's running, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but then she's got to raise money. And I've heard female candidates say over and over again, it is really hard as a woman to raise money. Can you talk about why that is for women, why it's so difficult for them to, to campaign and raise money? Well, there's two interesting things going on there. Um, first of all, it's actually not true. Um, the main reason why women have so much trouble raising money is because they're challengers. Um, when you actually look at the data, and this has been true since the 90s, but women running for Congress in particular actually do better at raising money than their male counterparts. And this has been consistently true for a long time. And this is true whether you're a female incumbent or whether you're a female challenger. But the bottom line is, yeah, most women are going to be raising less money than men, are going to have a hard time because they're challengers and they're not the incumbents. Um, but female incumbents of both parties do really well when it comes to raising money. And part of the, now, they do have to work harder for it, though, because we do know that the average contribution size to female candidates is much smaller. So they do have to work harder, and they're going to have to scramble more. Um, but I think with in the digital age and the way that fundraising happens now, I think that isn't as much of a challenge as it used to be, where you used to have to do the mailings and, you know, just fundraising was so much more labor intensive now, uh, you know, even 10 years ago compared to the, what it is now. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, the data show that it's, it's not true that women are behind when it comes to the actual fundraising totals. You know, you talked about women, uh, when they run, there tends to be that perception that, um, the, the male candidate has an advantage. Um, but like you said, some of that seems to be breaking down. You mentioned the fundraising is kind of breaking down. So are all these kind of old, uh, this older mentality about, uh, you know, women candidates, you know, that vicious cycle, well, women candidates can't win. So there are no women candidates because they can't win, you know, and it just kind of keeps going in a circle. Is that, do you think that is being broken down at this point to, um, uh, a point where we are going to see more, uh, 
running in the future? You know, I hope so. I mean, it's so hard to tell, you know, what's, you know, what might happen in the future. I, you know, I don't know if 2018 is going to be an anomaly. And I think this is true right now of all of us who are watching the 2018 midterms is this, you know, you know, what is going to happen, but just in terms of the way campaigns are run are, is changing so much um, you know, just in terms of social media and the use of new media um, and, you know, the success that candidates who are literally doing end runs around their party and runs around traditional campaign methods like doing TV spots and using social media is just opening up the field um, to new people and new candidates. But is 2018 just a blip? Is this, a, you know, is this something unusual or are we going to continue to see those trends? You know, the other thing that I always keep in the back of my head is I'm, I'm I'd be really interested to see not just are we seeing increases in women, but in general, are we going to continue to see increases in people running or are people just getting so disgusted that they want nothing to do with politics that over time we're actually going to be seeing dramatic declines overall in the number of people running, not just women, but men too, because they're just so sick and tired of politics and they want nothing to do with it. Well, you can really run a campaign now kind of outside of the traditional confines. I think that's, you know, we mentioned Ocasio-Cortez. That's really what she did. She ran this, you know, digital campaign where she was doing direct contact with voters. It's not like the, uh, you know, old days of the smoke-filled room where they're just, you know, picking, (laughs) you know, you're you're the one who's going to run and we're going to get all the money behind you. Um, that does seem to benefit uh, not even just women candidates, just a right. more diverse array of candidates. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, is that given why people are motivated to run this time around, um, you know, are we going to continue to see that or are people just going to tune out completely? Do you get capital letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting capital letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So we've talked on this show, you know, a number of times about the year of the woman this year, sort of that meme, I guess. Obviously, you guys got into that. So what did you guys um, talk about when it comes to that stuff? So the last year of the woman um, was in 1992, uh, which happened to coincide with Clarence Thomas um, being confirmed to the Supreme Court and the controversy surrounding um, Anita Hill's sexual harassment claims against him and the, the hearings uh, where, where she talked about those allegations. Uh, you couldn't help but draw you know, similarities to what happened in the last few weeks with Brett Kavanaugh and his confirmation and the allegations of sexual assault against him made by Dr. Christine Blase Ford. So we talked a little bit about whether or not we're going to see a repeat of the 1992 year of the woman, um, whether or not we're going to see more women elected. I think the uh, sort of consensus was, yes, it's very, very similar to the last time we had a year of the woman, um, but we don't know whether or not um, we're going to see more women elected. We got a top-notch crystal ball here on Ohio Matters. With that, let's get back to the interview with Barb Palmer. 
So I do want to jump into 2018 a little bit. Obviously, this year is different. We're seeing a wave of women, mainly on the Democratic side, running for office and, and winning primaries. So, um, you know, in this part of the process, women have seen success. We'll see how they do in the general election, right? right. Um, can you talk about the factors that contributed to this wave of women running? Yeah. I mean, what's so fascinating is when you look back to 1992, which was the original year of the woman, um, and you saw this surge in female candidates. I mean, the numbers of women in public office at that time were really, really low. But you saw this huge surge in candidates. And it's kind of remarkable how similar 2018 is. Um, there are some important differences. But in terms of this, the sort of political landscape in 1992, um, it is remarkably similar like frighteningly similar. It's deja vu all over again. So in 92, if you think back, um, we had an unusually high number of open seats. In a given congressional election cycle, um, usually about 40 seats are open seats out of the 435 races that are going on nationwide in the US House. In 1992, there were more than 60 open seats, which is, which I mean, that's, I mean, it doesn't sound like much, but it's actually pretty huge historically. And there were a variety of reasons why. One of the reasons was um, there were some sex scandals. And, um, but it was also the last year, 92 was the last year you could take your campaign account and cash it out and go to the Bahamas. Um, that's, they made a change in the campaign finance law. So there were a lot of incumbents in Congress who thought, hey, I can, you know, whatever I got left over in my campaign account is mine, so I'm, I'm out. Um, there was also a massive financial scandal in Congress. There was the infamous check writing scandal where the House has its, the Congress has its own bank. And all, there were a variety of members of Congress um, who had just have massive overdrawns, and they were just abusing this bank and writing all kinds of bad checks. And this came to light, and so a lot of members of Congress retired. Um, so, but then when you actually look at the issues that were on the agenda, you just had the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, and women were furious. Um, you know, the visual back then, which the Republicans remembered during the Kavanaugh hearings, because there were a couple of those folks who were on the committee back in 90, in 91. So, um, you know, women just saw this visual of an all white male judiciary committee questioning Anita Hill. And even the Democrats who were sort of kind of on her side were just such bumbling idiots in the way they handled her questioning and her testimony, um, that it really outraged and mobilized a lot of women to run. And so you saw a huge surge in candidates. Um, the joke is that, you know, the number of women in the Senate tripled. Yeah, it went from two to six. Uh, but the number of women in the House uh, doubled. So it went from mid-20s to, you know, mid-40s. And that's pretty substantial. But again, most of those women were Democrats, um, and so that's when we really begin to see this huge difference between the parties. Prior to 92, there were relatively equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate. After 92, that's no longer true. And that gap between the number of Democrats and Republican women in Congress has been widening ever since. But that's another story. Um, so you have this really unusual situation in 92 where you have kind of the perfect storm. You have open seats which tend to be opportunities. And you had this sort of galvanizing moment that really mobilized women. Fast forward to, 2000, to 2018. We have an unusually high number of open seats <laughs> for a variety of reasons. 
we've had the Me Too movement going on for the past year, which has really mobilized women. You had the Women's March the day after President Trump's inauguration, which really mobilized a lot of women. Um, and then you have the Kavanaugh hearings in the midst of all of this. So you have you've seen this huge surge um, with conditions that are very similar to 92. Now, there's one important difference, which is why as that, you know, we've seen the surge of women winning primaries, but it's still a big question in terms of whether or not we're going to see more women actually in elected office because of incumbency and gerrymandering. So since 92, we've been through two cycles of redistricting. And since then, you know, the partisan gerrymandering is has been taken to the extreme. And so even when you have an open seat now, it's still pretty gerrymandered and it's not necessarily an opportunity like it would have been back in the 90s. So you've got incumbents who are much more entrenched. Um, and that's unfortunately where most of these women are running in in. 2018, they're running against Republican incumbents. And so it's not clear that we're going to actually see a huge surge in the number of women in the Ohio State Legislature or in Congress. So as I mentioned, this female surge that we're seeing in candidates is mainly on the Democratic side. Right. Um, if you look at statistics from the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, um, about 43% of general election Democratic candidates for the House and Senate are women. Um, meanwhile, women make up about 22% of Republican Senate candidates and about 13% of Republican House candidates. Yeah. So it's clearly on yes. the Democratic side, right? Why do you think this is a trend that we're seeing mainly on the Democratic side? Are Republicans just bad at elevating women? Is this just not a Republican movement that we're seeing? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's such a fascinating question. I think, and I, and I there is, I think, an explanation that makes sense, but it's not very satisfying. Um, we know that, you know, we've already talked about the fact that neither party is going out of its way to recruit women. So it has to be something else. Um, and I think part of it is just that women voters are just simply more likely to call themselves Democrats. Um, we know that's true. We know there's been a gender gap among female voters for a really long time. Um, and so this would suggest that there is just a bigger pool of you know, women for the Democrats that are out there to actually then decide to run. Um, but that just, I don't know, that just seems like kind of a very vague kind of response. And so, you know, I, it's, but I think that's a big part of it. Right now, the Democratic Party is perceived as being sort of the party that addresses the kinds of issues that women tend to support. And the Republicans seem to be running in the other direction, um, which I think is problematic in the long run. For their party. Um, and so, you know, they are increasingly being perceived as the party of rich white men. And that's not how you win national elections um, in the long run. So, but right now, the Republican Party doesn't seem to have a problem with that. When you look at the congressional races proportionally, the proportion of women who are running for Congress this year still is far smaller than the proportion of men. I think 32% of general election Senate candidates this year are women, and about 29% of general election House candidates mm -hmm. are women. So that's a fairly small number, right, comparatively right. To, to men running. So can you talk about, you know, this, people are talking up this huge surge of women candidates, but when you look at it, it it's still 
nowhere near parody. Right. Well, and that's the thing. It's it's a it's a huge surge compared to 2016. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you always have to sort of keep it in context. I mean, that's what I'm interested in is sort of understanding these longer term trends. And so, yeah, those numbers are nowhere near parity. But when you compare them to previous election cycles, those numbers are huge. Um, and I did the math. And if uh, in a general in a typical general election cycle, the net increase of the number of women in the U.S. House is two. So if you kind of, and, and the net increase of women in the Senate in a typical election year is one. So, you know, if you project that out, if those trends remain the same, you know, we're talking 100, 150 years before we actually reach parity in the House and the Senate. Um, so it is a long-term, long slog. Um, however, I think that, you know, if if this w- became a priority, change could happen a lot quicker. You know, if someone puts their mind to it and actually goes out and recruits female candidates, you know, it could change quicker. But the bottom line is I, I don't have a lot of optimism for that. Um, I just think we're in for a really long slog, and you have to sort of keep in mind that, you know, things are better this year, especially compared to last year. I, I also want to ask you, too, let's let's focus in on Ohio. Can we talk about how this year of the women trend is playing out in Ohio? Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why, again, Ohio is so interesting is on the one hand, we are definitely a bellwether. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, Ohio has term limits. And so back in the 90s, when term limits were like the hot issue, and there were a lot of states that, I shouldn't say a lot, there were about 15 states that implemented term limits uh, for their state legislatures. And the idea was, well, okay, if the biggest barrier that women face is incumbency, then let's get rid of incumbents. And so a lot of people thought, well, if we have term limits, we should see a surge of women serving in these state legislatures. It was kind of the perfect experiment. You could compare the states with term limits, term limits to the states that didn't have them, and then we could find out. Well, as it turns out, uh, term limits are not the kind of solution that people thought they would be for women. And in fact, there have been some fantastic studies done on states with term limits, and the evidence is very mixed. In some states, you did see increases. In some states, there was no change. And in some states, there was actually a decline in the number of women in the state legislature. And Ohio is a really tough case, too. There's there's no evidence that term limits have really had much of an impact on the success of women. We definitely have not seen an increase in the number of women in the state legislature because of term limits. So, you know, you, you, you have to keep that political context in mind. So that does make Ohio somewhat unique nationally, but we haven't seen a lot of evidence that term limits are really helping women in this state. Um, 2018 has been a really interesting year in Ohio. We have seen a surge in candidates at the state level for the state legislature. Um, We can talk about what's happening statewide as well, because there's nothing going on there. That's the short answer. Um, But at the state legislative level, we have seen a surge in women running for both the state House and the state Senate. And um, but they've been, again, mostly Democrats, overwhelmingly Democrats. And so what's what's and again, they tend to be running against Republican incumbents. And so I'm not sure if we're going to see a huge increase in the number of women in the state Senate. Uh, State Senate terms, like the U.S. Senate, are staggered. And so only half the state Senate is up this this time around in 17 districts. And there are currently six women in the state Senate. When it's all over, I'm not sure we're going to see too many more. 
Um, we have a lot of women who are running, but um, you know they're running in gerrymandered districts against Republicans. So I don't know how much change we'll actually see in the state Senate. Um, there's the potential there for some increases, but it's, it's not clear. Um, same with the state house. We've seen a huge number of Democratic women run. Um, and what's really interesting about both the state Senate and the state house races, the, I guess the sort of good news is that over half of the voters in the state are going to be seeing a woman on the ballot. Um, and that, I don't think we've ever seen that. And so that's pretty, I mean, that's, that's the good news. If you, if you think about it, too, on a federal level, right, obviously um, Ohio has two male senators, and the only Senate race this, this year is two men running against each right. other, Sherrod Brown and Jim Renacci. So we're not going to see any change as far as the you right. know, representation in the U.S. Senate. Right. Um, in the U.S. Um, House, um, there are eight women congressional candidates in Ohio who mm-hmm. are challenging incumbents yeah. or running for an open seat. Right. But they all kind of face long odds. Yes. Yeah. And so there are currently three women in Ohio's uh, House delegation, mm-hmm. um, and they're all Democrats. Um, and so three of the four Democrats from Ohio are women. Um, and so you've got Tim Ryan, plus you've got Marcy Kaptur, um, who represents the 9th District. Um, and her story, I think, is kind of indicative of larger trends. Um, so, so we currently have three. All three of those female incumbents are running for re-election because they're in such gerrymandered districts, they will probably win. Um, however, there are two, there's, there are three women who are running in other races that have been getting some attention. Um, you've got uh, the, uh, so it, but, but again, unless there's this massive blue wave, you know, the odds of any of those women running or winning, I think is pretty slim. And so I think when it's all over, even though we've seen record numbers of women running, um, I don't think there's going to be much change. Yeah, the the name that keeps coming up for us as far as the woman who has the best chance of winning as far as challengers go um, in in Congress is Betsy Rader. Right. um, Who is kind of in a purple district. Well, and even I just checked this morning, and that race is still considered safe Mm -hmm. for the Republican um, as far as the what I, the reading that I've done, but yeah, she has been getting a lot of attention, um, and but again, when you just look at the district and the race ratings, you know, again, it would just have to be a massive blue wave for the Democrats this year, and I think in order for her to pick up that seat. And then I do want to talk a little bit about um, sort of the statewide slate. So the only woman running for a uh, statewide executive office is Kathleen Clyde. She's yeah. a Democrat. Yep. Um, it, the entire field is male um, yeah. other other than her. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about what happened in the gubernatorial primaries yeah. because early this year, um, half the field was exactly. women. Um, and that changed pretty quickly. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that because at the time I found it really interesting. Right. And so, yeah, early on, um, there were this, this surge of female, of, of women running for governor. And I think there were four, mm-hmm. um, Mary Taylor and three Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it looked like, it was like, wow, this is very exciting and very unusual. Again, when you look historically in, um, Ohio, uh, we've never actually had a female candidate, on the ballot for a major party in this state ever. And so I thought, wow, 2018, this is, you know, it could really actually happen. Um, Now, we have actually had a female governor for 11 days. 
she uh, was not directly elected. No, she Nancy was Lute- Hollister. Exactly. She was lieutenant governor. And uh, uh, Governor Voinovich had run for Senate and won. And his Senate term started before his governor's term ended. And so there was this 11-day gap where she was governor. So that's it. Um, now, to be fair, uh, female governors are rare. Um, there are probably, you know, only, I can't remember the exact number, but it's about a dozen states who have actually had female governors. So we're in good company. But what's what's fascinating in Ohio is we have had nine women serve statewide. Most of them have been lieutenant governor. When you look at over the past 50 years, sort of the path to the governor's mansion in Ohio, it goes for most candidates, it goes through the lieutenant governor's office. So most of the men, among the men who have been governor in the last 50 years, most of them have been lieutenant governor. And most of the women that we've seen statewide, it's been in the lieutenant governor's office, but they haven't been able to convert that into becoming governor. And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea why. Um, It's just this really strange thing where men seem to be really good at using other statewide offices or having served in the U.S. Congress as a stepping stone into the governor's mansion in Ohio. And the few women that we've had in statewide office in Ohio have not been able to do that. I want to ask, you know, generally, you know, when we think of the year of the women in 2018, can you say with any certainty that this increase in women running um, is going to lead to more women being elected? No. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a small increase in the number of women who are actually elected. Um, I don't think it'll be particularly large, though. And and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't have, that's just what my gut is kind of telling me, based on, you know, what I've been watching with the races, especially post-Kavanaugh. Um, I, I, I don't know, I, but I doubt it. We talked about, too, the struggles that women face in Ohio specifically with with getting elected. Ohio um, today has uh, no women running statewide other than Kathleen Clyde. So we have one. Uh, She's running for secretary of state. Don't forget our Supreme Court justice candidates, which we always do forget. Right. uh, To statewide elected uh, uh, to statewide executive office, I mean. Yeah. So uh, we talked a little bit about how Ohio differs from some other states that have been able to get more women elected to um, their state legislatures like Nevada or like Arizona um, and sort of the unique um, sort of makeup of the electorate and how that influences whether or not women um, are elected here. You know, the thing I liked about this whole interview is while it might not have given us all of the answers, it definitely it's good for perspective. And I, I don't know if uh, you felt that way, Mary. Like the entire time we're talking to Barb, she's really painting this whole picture. We always talk about these, you know, the women in politics. We'll talk about it in like individual parts a lot of the times. And it it was it was really informative to see kind of all the wheels in motion at once. Yeah, I mean, I think we really we do tend to focus on different races, right? Like 2016, 2018, 1992, um, as sort of big hallmark changes as, as, as far as women go. But when you look at it, the broad context and you look at all of the sort of pieces together, you can see, um, how one thing led to another. 
Yeah, with progress. I mean, it's sometimes, you know, we like to think, put these really fine points on it. And it's like, oh, that's the year it all happened. And suddenly we had all these women. But obviously, you know, it's fits and starts when it comes to change. And so uh, we don't know how the election's going to go this time, of course. But just you have to assume that regardless of exactly how that turns out, that maybe more women will just broadly be more encouraged to run. And it'll just kind of be this trend that continues on over time. With that, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Barb Palmer. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the way um, women have um, succeeded in politics in Ohio um, historically. So can you talk a little bit about how women historically have fared in Ohio as far as um, being elected? You know, it's, again, it's it's a long, slow, steady, well, not actually that, not that steady, um, slog in Ohio, um, which is true in most states. Um, the very first women in Ohio were elected in the 1920s, shortly after the passage of the 19th Amendment, which constitutionally guaranteed women the right to vote across the nation. So uh, right after that, we saw really interesting. There was this sort of blip. There was this sort of a mini surge of women running for the state legislature in Ohio after the passage of the 19th Amendment. And after that, things kind of quieted down in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, throughout the 40s and 50s, you just didn't see a whole lot of women running. This is true, of course, nationally as well. And it really wasn't until the 1970s, um, after the, the second wave women's movement, when you begin to see more and more women running. Um, and so it's just, it's been, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of stuff going on for most of the 20th century. And it's really been in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century that we've really begun to see any kind of numbers of women running uh but partially and i think partially this is because of term limits but there's just not a whole lot of consistency especially in the state senate you know from year to year i can't say that it's been this you know steady progress it's really sort of been in fits and starts there's peaks and valleys in the trends um and in this in the state house yes you do see an overall trend if you squint of there gradually becoming more and more women in the state house that is not true in the state senate um, and I think part of it is just because the state Senate is smaller. You've only got 33 members and you only have 17 up every 16 and 17 up every other year. Um, but it's really it's not a sort of neat, clear picture. Yeah. And I I'm, I'm, was looking through your research and I believe um, according to your work, um, only nine women have served uh, in statewide office in Ohio and some seven of those women have been elected since 1994 which is fairly recent exactly is there something about ohio something specific um unique to the state that makes it hard for women to win well you know i think again it goes back to demographics um one of the really distinct demographic features in ohio although this is changing is you know we the it's the old it's the old rust belt Right. And so, you know, this is the the historically strong blue collar union state. Um, And those tend to be the kinds of places where women don't do very well. So it's this very traditional working class white uh, base. Um, That's obviously changing in Ohio, as it is nationally. But we still have that tradition. We still have proportionally higher numbers of people who are uh, members of unions than nationwide. Um, another sort of counterexample I can give you to this is Massachusetts. You know, people always think, oh, Massachusetts is so blue. They're so progressive. They have sent their, their record in terms of electing women is far worse than ours. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren was one of the first women 
Massachusetts had ever elected to public to national public office. Um, I and believe this year is the first year I think that they have a chance to send a woman to Congress from Boston. Yeah, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, so there was another woman, um, Songus, uh, blanking on her first name, who was the I think the first woman to serve for Massachusetts in the U.S. Congress, and she was elected in the 2000s. Um, and of course, her husband was famous in in Massachusetts politics and ran for president, uh, Nikki Songus. That was her name, and she was one of the first women ever elected to Congress from Massachusetts. And you know that was 20 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but again, Massachusetts is that sort of ethnic old blue collar union base and that's really you know if you want to understand massachusetts politics you have to understand that history and there's a lot i think a lot of that going on here in ohio so i think that's part of it i think it's just you know when you look at the demographics of the state and the kinds of demographics that are more likely to produce female candidates i think that goes a long way in helping us understand what is it about you mentioned at the top of the show that um, women tend to get elected from more, you know, racially diverse areas, mm-hmm. from more urban areas um, and, and the like. What is it about? Is there something inherent? in What is it about those areas that drives women candidates? I mean, is it I, I think is there it's a sociological a, reason or something? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. Um kind of drawing on all the things that we've been talking about when you look at the Democratic Party, which tends to draw more female candidates. And when you look at urban areas, there tend to be more Democratic voters. Um, And the kinds of issues in urban or suburban areas tend to be the issues that we call women's issues or that are issues that women care about. So in big cities, you know, you care about things like having really good schools. Not that they don't care about that in rural areas, but, you know, education spending, um, social services, social welfare programs, you know, all of those kinds of things that tend to be more supported by women, um, you tend to find those intensified in urban areas. And so I think that's part of it. But why doesn't that translate over to like Rust Belt cities? You know, you talk about the Rust Belt area as not being um, as likely to elect a woman. Uh, We talk about Boston not electing a woman for however long. Why why doesn't that urban influence transfer over to those kind of old school working class cities? You know, because I think they just have much more traditional attitudes about the roles of women. Um, And you're much more likely to find um, more married women um, and it's districts that have a higher proportion of single women where women are more successful. Um, but I mean, I think that's a really interesting question and I, I may not have all the answers for that, but um, it's just, you know, these, they, they tend to have much more traditional attitudes about women's roles. And I'm speaking in broad generalities here, um, but that's what um, some of the research that we've done has shown. So Nevada, actually, and Arizona, we, we talked a little bit earlier um, before we, we started recording, but Nevada and, and Arizona both um, have done a pretty good job at electing women. Um, and I'm just curious, what is it about some of those sort of western states or south, southwest states um, that makes them more conducive to electing women than, say, Ohio or Massachusetts um, Yeah, and I think this may go back to your question about Rust Belt. Um, Western states enfranchised women way before the rest of the country. Um, The first state to grant women the right to vote at the state level was Wyoming. Um, And so you had Wyoming, Utah, Colorado. As they became states, 
women were voters. Um, now, it wasn't necessarily because they had super progressive attitudes about women. It was because at the time, in order to become a state, you had to have a certain number of people who were voting citizens. And so if you suddenly enfranchise women, you just doubled that. Um, so but but there was this you know sort of frontier tradition that with regards to women's roles that was very different than you know the well-established east coast cities and societies um and so you know out on the frontier you know women were like in the fields with the men they were you know planting the crops they were running the general stores because they had to in order to survive and so you have a much more i think just egalitarian tradition and history in western states as just the foundation um, so I think that's a really important part of it. Um, but yeah, the Arizona yeah, um, situation, I think, is fascinating because they have, you know, elected all kinds of women statewide in their state legislature. Um, but yet at the same time, their politics doesn't necessarily turn out the way you would always expect in that situation. Um, so, yeah, the, the Arizona situation, Arizona politics, I think, is fascinating. So in Ohio, you can sort of count on your fingers the number of women who have had success either statewide or, you know, um, in Congress today. Um, Some of the most recent examples, um, more recent examples, I mean, Joanne Davidson, Betty Montgomery, Mary Taylor, um, and then our current um, congresswomen uh, from the state, the the three, Marsha Fudge, Marcy Kaptur, and Joyce Beatty. Right. Um, what went right for these women um, to be able to succeed in Ohio and, and win? You know, there are not that many of them. So, you know, I, I know they're, they're different races and different contributing factors. Right. Um, but what went right? Well, um, I would say, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that went right for them. But I would say they ran in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, Marcy Captor's district starts in downtown Cleveland and, you know, reaches all the way to downtown Toledo. Um, but it's, you know, got two large urban areas in it. Um, it's also really gerrymandered <laughs> to be a Democratic district. Um, but she is the dean of the women in the U.S. House, sort of fun fact. She is the she is currently the longest serving woman in Congress. Uh, so she's been around a long time. She was first elected in 1982. And even just her story in terms of the way she got elected is pretty incredible. Um, she was asked to run, uh, but, you know, the party didn't have huge expectations for her. And she she ran anyway and, you know, raised money uh, by selling cookies and having bake sales. You know, it's just this sort of great story. Um, but I think this goes back to the question you said earlier about, you know, how are female candidates perceived differently or, or how can female candidates succeed? I think she's a great example because she's always been herself. And she does a fantastic job of telling her story to the voters consistently. I mean, I remember when she had to run against Dennis Kucinich in the primary in 2012. And she just did a fantastic, she didn't assume that voters knew who she was because, you know, a big part of her district had been redrawn. And she ran these fantastic um, bio ads where she talked about her family. She was one of the ads in particular that I remember she was standing in front of her house that she still lives in. It was the house that her parents had owned. And she was just herself. And I think voters really appreciate that. So she had a lot. I think she kind of is the sort of the poster child for what to do right. Um, you, you always be yourself in your campaigns. Um, you never take it for granted that you're going to win, even though she's in this you know ridiculously democratic gerrymandered district. She doesn't take it for granted that she's going to win. Um, and you know, the demographics of her district are the type that are going to favor female candidates. 
you know, we've talked a lot about this gender gap in politics and this sort of wave that we're seeing um, of women running, especially on the Democratic side. But I want to get to the main point, which is why this matters, right? Why is it important to have women represented in elected office? Why is this gender gap a problem? So could you sort of you know, talk a little bit about why it's important to have women represented in elected office and what we're missing out of of if we don't? Yeah, well, first, I think for me, there's two things. First, I think it's just the fairness question. Uh, You know, women are slightly more than 50% of the population. And so why aren't we 50% of the elected officials? Um, You know, you got to sort of ask yourself, well, huh, if this was just sort of a random kind of draw, women would be half. Um, and it wouldn't have taken until 2016 for us to have a female presidential candidate. Um, so I think there, I think the fairness issue is, I think, an important one. Um, but secondly, when you have more women in elected office, we do know that they tend to behave a little differently than their than their than their male counterparts. Um, and again, this could be changing. Again, this is one of those things that, given the deeply divided partisan era that we're in i don't know if this is true but what we do know is that up until now when you have more women in any kind of institution you tend to get different results in terms of bipartisanship in terms of you know reaching across the aisle um, and the kinds of things that end up on the agenda um there's a there's studies that show that when you compare uh uh male representative in the U.S. House to a female representative, if they come from similar districts, if you look at their votes, they vote exactly the same. And so, you know, the, the end vote on a piece of legislation, when you compare men and women, it's, it's about party, okay? However, when you look at the legislative agendas of the man from that district and the woman from another, a similar district, their agendas are very different because their personal experiences are different. And so in 1993, after we saw the first year of the woman, the first piece of legislation that got passed was the Family and Medical Leave Act. I mean, that was not a coincidence. That had been proposed, you know, before Congress for years, but it didn't pass until there was this critical mass of women who were like, that's it, we're doing this. Um, and so it, 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 was, it became some, a priority. And so there's tons and tons of research that shows Women just bring a different set of priorities with them. And so different things are going to get on the agenda. And it's not that men don't support those things. It's just that maybe they never thought of it before and it wasn't a priority for them. So we know that priorities change um, and the agenda gets bigger. The other thing that changes is a lot of times just the way that problems are defined changes as well. Um, Women are more likely to see a more holistic approach to certain social problems. So a great example of this is like in the 90s, it was all about law and order. It was like all about three strikes, you're out. And like the way to combat crime was to build more jails, three strikes, you're out, and be very punitive. And But if you compare the kinds of bills that were being proposed by women in state legislatures at that time, women were more likely to see it as, okay, we got to start, we got to fund, you know, pre-K. 
We got to fund more education. We got to fund after school programs. We got to, um, you know, do much more drug treatment programs. And so in addition to building jails and all that stuff, we want a much more holistic approach. And so we know that women just bring a different approach to legislating than men on average. I'm not saying that everybody does that. You know, not all men think that way and not all women think that way either. But on average, that's what you see. And I think you can look at the last couple of uh, budget go-arounds in Congress. Um, you know, it was the women who, from both sides, on the Republican side and the Democratic side in the Senate, who ended the last shutdown. They were like, enough, you know, of this pissing match between all these men, um, Democrats and Republicans. And it was the women in the Senate who sat down, cranked out a bargain and said, enough, we're doing this, and ended the shutdown. That's one of the things that I've heard, too, is women are good at building consensus and yeah. are good at reaching across the aisle. And I, I think, especially in the partisan age that we're living, those qualities in any politician are important. Yeah. Now, it's important to keep in mind, though, that there are it has to be in a context that allows for that. So, for example, in the Senate, we see women crossing the aisles a lot more than men. Because in the Senate, in order to get anything done, you have to do that. In the House, it's majority rule. There's no space. There's very little space for that. And in fact, you know, when you talk to some of the women in the House and the men, they will say that if they've attempted to be bipartisan, um, their leadership will come after them. And so you have to, it's not simply that, you know, there's all kinds of sociological evidence that women are going to be more likely to behave this way, but you still have to have an institutional space that allows that. I don't want to go too much into 2020 or anything like that because, you know, prognosticating doesn't help anyone. Right. But when you look at what the race was like in 2016, we saw, you know, um, you know, Trump calling, you know, Hillary right. Clinton a nasty woman. And right. I think, you know, one of the things that's actually sort of telling me was subtle um, wasn't actually by Trump. Um you know, a lot of people referred to Trump as Trump. They referred to him by his last name, but right. they referred to Clinton as Hillary. She right. was Hillary, which I don't know if that says anything. You know, I thought about a lot about, a lot about that, too. And I'm one, the problem is Hillary Clinton is just so unique. Mm. And so a lot of things like that, you don't know, is that because she's Hillary or is it because she's a woman? Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, I had a lot of conversations with my friends about that. Um, and it was because and it was it because she was a woman or was it because Bill Clinton had already been president mm. and so when you say clinton yeah do you, yeah you, you know that. who are you talking about yeah. and so but you, but but who knows maybe it's both but i ask that because when you know you look forward into 2020 there's probably going to be at least a half dozen women i would imagine who are going to probably put in for the presidency you know you're looking at like amy klobuchar yeah amy klobuchar brand you're looking yeah. at kamala harris you're looking at elizabeth, elizabeth warren, warren. Yep. um i'm sure there's others that aren't coming to you know right. front of mind right now um do you think we're going to see like as vitriolic a race oh, against wow. women in 2020 as we did in 2016, given that we, you know, everything that's happened over the last two years? You know, that's 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 the million dollar question. Um, one of the things that's really frustrated me as a social scientist, um, but also as a woman, um, is in 2016, you know, we just kept hearing, oh, 2016 was so unusual. It was so unusual. It was so unusual. And in a lot of regards, when you actually looked at the results and the way people voted, it wasn't. Like when you compare voting patterns among demographic groups in 2016, it's identical to 2020. Like nobody behaved any differently as a voter in 2016 than they did in 20, 
2012, which suggests to me that there are still some sort of fundamentals about politics that haven't changed at all. But what did change was, you know, things that the candidates did and said that would have been career killers in any other election cycle seem to have no effect at all. Um, And we're still seeing that. So, you know, does that mean the genie's out of the bottle, to use a really crappy cliche? (laughs) Um, You know, I don't know. Um, I want to be hopeful, um, you know, because people say they're tired of all of the screaming and yelling and chaos. But on the other hand... I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary that people are actually going to base their votes on this. And and I think given our primary system and gerrymandering and campaign finance, I'm not real hopeful. So do I think 2020 is going to be as crazy in terms of the rhetoric? I think that's a distinct possibility. What do you think? You know, I actually don't know. I look at, um, you know, we talk about like, so we look at like 92, we look at Anita right. Hill and Clarence Thomas, right. and it was the year of the woman, and everybody kind of points to that, and then it doesn't seem like there's another kind of transformational event, really, no, until no. I think you would probably say 2016. You could right. maybe go with 2008 and Sarah Palin, but that doesn't didn't seem quite the no, same, you no, know? No, no, um, And you look at like 2016, um, you know, I remember talking to a, I believe she was a 101-year-old woman who was like having her caregiver roll her out of the nursing home so that she could go vote because she wanted to vote for a woman and deathbed or not, she was going to do it. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to women after the election. I think Mary's done a lot of this work too, where there was this like, just, you know, this like snap, what happened, you know, all of a sudden couple that with, you got, um, you know, the Me Too movement yeah. uh, starting up basically, what's like six months after the inauguration? I don't remember when the Harvey Weinstein story It was, right. it was October. It was, it was about October. a year yeah, ago. Yeah, about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that boils up all of a sudden. Then you have, um, you know, women running and seeming to do pretty well. Yeah. Um, and then Brett Kavanaugh. And right. then Brett Kavanaugh. So I look at, like, the last two years as, um, you know, like, if uh, if the Clarence Thomas and Nia Hill thing was like a uh, Mount St. Helens, it seems like right. we're at like Krakatoa. Right yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I honestly, I have no idea. And I mean, right. it doesn't seem like, I mean, look at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Look at the difference that there was with the 92 hearings. They had to bring in a woman. Yes, they to, thought they had to, the Republicans yeah. thought they had to bring in this woman. And of course they abandoned that. You know? And I mean, even what, five years ago, that's just that, doesn't even seem like it's a thought at that point you know well also i mean you talk about term limits i mean so many of those people were number one in their 80s the senators who were you know asking questions and number two several of them were on the 1992 anita hill um hearing committee too so i mean that's one thing that um i think people were sort of noticing with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, hmm. And Had I, things really changed. And my conclusion was no. I mean, Clarence Thomas got, he's on the Supreme Court. And so I, it, that's, that was sort of running through my head through all of this. I'm like, yeah, Clarence Thomas got on the Supreme Court in spite of Anita Hill. I'm like, Brett Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, 
sort of watching all of this, I was struck by how little had changed. And, you know, when you sort of look at what's happening again in the Me Too context, suddenly we're having these comeback stories, you know, Matt Lauer and, you know, all of these other folks that are sort of having these comebacks. Louis C.K. Exactly. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? But I guess what I'm wondering is you mentioned that, like, you know, the you know Clarence Thomas happened. He was still right. confirmed everything. Um, you know, there was this backlash to it. You, you, but you know, I think people, and, and, you know, for better or worse, they look at a problem and they say, oh, well, we, we dealt with that, and now yeah. we, we don't do this anymore. It's not a problem. You know, the, you know, Barack Obama gets elected president, and all of a sudden people are talking about a post-racial right. society or whatever. Um, and I'm wondering if all of the events over the past two years have really, like, just completely, you know, if maybe it was, like, tucked underneath, and but it's been just boiling there, yeah. and it's like, you know, you can't put it back at this point right. because— I don't know. I, I just I have no idea. I'm, no, I think, think I think that's I think that's there's a lot of, of truth in that. Um, and so I think the way to sort of think about the success of Donald Trump is it is in a sense sort of the backlash. It's it's a response to I don't know if backlash is the right word, but it is a response to the Obama era. You know, it was the country was perceived by some as swinging way too far to the left and being way far too progressive. And this is the, the what we call a correction. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the other thing that is very different than 1992 is we have social media, hmm. which now amplifies all kinds of voices that maybe didn't have that that weren't voiced, that were silenced, but also didn't feel felt like they had to tamp down and keep it in their mother's basement and, you know, not talk about it publicly. Um I just heard a really interesting interview with, you know, the creator of Twitter, and he talked about how, you know, and and Mark Zuckerberg has said this too, that, you know, when they created Twitter and Facebook, you know, they they were kind of naive, you know, they just really wanted to connect the world, they wanted people to be able to connect with their friends and neighbors and share their experiences. They never thought that they would be connecting, you know, Nazis who were living in their mother's basements. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's the double-edged sword. Um, there's all the great things that come with social media, but there's all the bad things, um, that come with it too. And, you know, the fact that people feel that they can say mean, horrible, terrible things, um, with no repercussions. And we're obviously seeing that spill into our politics. And it tends to affect female candidates more than men. Um, there are studies that show that female candidates have to deal with sexist attacks on through their social media all the time, and they have to respond. You know, we, we talked about Donald Trump, and I'm just going to throw this question out because I, I found it fascinating. When, when I was talking to voters in 2016, um, women voters um, who supported Donald Trump, a lot of the time they would begin by saying, well, I don't always agree with right. with what he says or how he says it, but I just, I hate Hillary. Right. I hate Hillary, mm-hmm. and I hate her. Right. And um, a question that always, you know, came up for me is, you know, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she was, her approval ratings were pretty high. Yeah, exactly. Like, she, she did a good job. Um, right. People liked her. People liked her when she was a senator from New York. Mm-hmm. Why, as a presidential candidate, did people hate Hillary Clinton? Because I feel like they sort of um, 
they could ignore some of the things that Donald Trump said and did because the the hate of Hillary was so yeah. high. Yeah. No, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, the one thing that was unique about 2016 is we had two candidates that were sort of universally hated. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, you know, when you compare that to Obama and Mitt Romney, you know, Obama had tremendous amounts of, you know, approval and you know there were these awesome questions in September of 2012 about like who would you rather have a beer with who would you rather have take care of when you were sick who would you rather be friends with and you know Obama was just you know 40 points above Romney on you know a lot of those questions and you know things like that matter to people and so there's usually one candidate in a presidential race that has like really you know people just aren't connecting with at any level and it's not necessarily a Democrat or Republican thing. It just depends on the candidate. And in 2012, it happened to be Mitt Romney that was just not connecting with people. But yeah, in 2016, you had two candidates that were just loathed um, by voters. And so, yeah, it's, it was the hold your nose and vote election. Um, and, you know, how does gender play into that, I think, is a fascinating question. But again, it's so difficult to sort out. Is this something that was unique to Hillary Clinton or was it? A gender thing and I think because you know she's just she's you know an n of one as we say in social science it's hard to tell um but you know that question of why women in particular a lot of women hated her um you know I'm not that's an interesting question I mean she did win women's votes mm-hmm. um but it was the same proportion of women's votes that Barack Obama had um and so there's been some really interesting studies that are now happening about negative partisanship where people are now starting to base their votes not for a particular candidate but it's because they hate the other candidate um and i'd love to see more work on that to see how much of a trend that really is because that's kind of scary and sad well thank you so much for joining us we appreciate it Well, thank you for having me this was really fun 